Hi, my name is Ozzy Jurok. I'm the host of OzBuzz, where we meet interesting people and find out what their hobby horses are and what their eclectic views of the world they're willing to share with us. And today we are really thrilled to have with us the president of the Geller Group, Michael Geller, who is an adjunct professor at the Simon Fraser University Center of Sustainable Development. He's an architect, a planner, a real estate consultant, a small developer, and he writes for the Vancouver Courier and the Vancouver Sun. I'm amazed you have time to join us tonight. <laughs> <laughs> On the contrary, I always enjoy being with you. Well, look, you have, of course, a long history in the real estate uh, world. I mean, you have built, you have planned, you have been in, in all facets of the business. And, uh, of course, you have been honored as a life member of the Architectural Institute and you're a fellow of the Canadian Institute of Planners. You have so many credentials, so your opinion matters. And I understand you have a starting to have a new look at a new world that you see, which you call the missing middle housing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I started off at CMHC, and as you recall, CMHC started building single-family houses for veterans. And then as the years went by, I lived in Toronto, and I watched the developers starting to build apartments, and then eventually condominiums. So that's what you had. You have single-family houses on one extreme, you have uh, apartments on the other, and yes, there's townhouses as well. But in Canada, and especially in Vancouver, we never really built the forms of housing that are kind of in between. And I developed an interest in, in that, and I'd love to chat to you a little bit about them. Well, what do you mean by that in between? Is it in between in pricing or, or sizes? Or? Well, because I'm an architect, let's start talking about building form. Okay. So on one end, you've got a single family house. Then what's the next thing? Well, the next thing is a duplex. Most people know that a duplex is really two homes together. They may be one beside the sure. other, one above the other, often one behind the other, but it's on one piece of property. What people often don't appreciate, Ozzy, until they buy one, is they're in a strata. Yeah. It's just a two-unit yes. strata, but you do have to get along with your, 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 your neighbor. In England, you'd often see two homes, or even in Germany, other European countries, side by side, but they'd be called semi-detached because yeah. they're actually on two lots. Oh, I see, okay. But you have a party wall, you just have a legal agreement, but that's not a strata. But then you take it further, you get the triplex, or you go to Montreal and you see what they call these maisonettes, yes. where you might have three homes, one above the other, rentals sometimes, ownership another time. All of a sudden, you're beginning to make a more intensive use of the land. And then you begin to think, Maybe you can get a triplex or a duplex. And now in the backyard, you could put one of these laneway houses or sure. coach houses. Sure. So now you've got three or four homes on one lot. That's the kind of thing I'm interested in. Well, and it makes sense because then you're also, the price level comes down. Maybe you don't really need that 3,000 square foot footprint for every single unit. That's right. So if you take a look at the way we zone land, Usually we have what we call a floor space ratio or floor area ratio. So on a 10,000 foot lot, you might be able to put a 6,000 square foot house. If you take my thought, having say three or four homes, now maybe you've got a 1,000 square foot unit, you've got two 1,500 square foot units, and then the balance. So you're beginning to create some new housing choices 
Although oftentimes you can design them so that from the street, from the curb, sure. it just looks like one big house. And they're very appealing, you know. I mean, and I think semi-detached though, I'm thinking of my time in Toronto and they have these rows and rows of semi-detached stuff stretching into the distance over the hills and I'm always wondering if I ever uh, had one or two too many beers, would I find the place because they all look the same? Well, you're absolutely right, especially when they're first built. Yeah. But what's so interesting is over time you will find your home because all of a sudden somebody decides to paint the brick on their half white sure. and they change the roof. Or the trees grow. Or and somebody else adds a bay window because because it's not a dupe, because it's not a strata, you can modify it yourself. So hopefully there's municipal officials who are listening to this and they're going to say, you know, they're right. We should be zoning for semi-detached housing just like they do in Toronto because it's a housing choice that currently isn't available. Well, the city of Vancouver now allows for duplexes. No, it's it's sort right. of a major step that they made uh, not yeah. too long ago. In fact, what people don't appreciate is that on a single family lot in Vancouver, you can generally have three different units. You can have the principal unit, or you could have, and you can have a basement suite, and you can have a coach house, or you can have a duplex and a coach house. Although now they're, they're rethinking that. But ultimately, what I'd like to see is let them have five homes on one lot. You could have a duplex, with a basement suite in each half and sure. a coach house in the back. And somebody's going to say, yeah, but where do you put the parking? Well, maybe you don't need parking for everybody. In fact, you don't. So maybe you have three parking On spaces. the city of Vancouver already, I know my partner who lives on uh, uh, close to the Vancouver Hospital and the parking is strictly regulated in terms of, you know, this. my son is still living with me in the basement suite. It's still all right. But you can't have unlimited amount of cars. You have to... You have to make allowances for it. Well, look, the city, of course, wants more occupancy. I mean, what would we have? All these different goals of different councils, 50,000 more units. So. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we have all these good new ideas, like Bob Rennie for years felt that we could add another floor on every four-story building that, that was built uh, to code mm -hmm. at the time. But yet, for some reason, we can't get it done. Does that, is that an economic reason or is it a lack of vision that we have? I think often it's more the approval process, the reluctance of people to change the rules and regulations. But as I get older, I'm becoming more optimistic because the things that we used to preach 30 years ago, while it may have taken 30 years, it's finally happening. So, for instance, parking. Parking is very important. I, I, I am sure there's people listening to us right now who say, you've got to have parking. I couldn't manage without a car. There's other people living, listening to us right now who say, I don't even have a driver's license. Now that sure. seems odd to sure. you and me, the way we grew sure. up, but there's a lot of people in Vancouver now who say, I don't need a driver's license because I don't need a car. There's others who say, I do need a car but I don't need to own one. And so car share becomes a Absolutely. popular option. I mean, and to me, that just blows me away. My own grandchildren don't want a car. I mean, I, all my <laughs> life, I wanted not just a car, I wanted a nice car, and then a nicer car, right? And so, and uh, my oldest grandson just explained, but he says, oh, he says, why do I need a car? He says, if I want to go somewhere, I get one of those Evo things, and it's 20 bucks, and it includes 
Insurance yeah. and gas. Yeah. Okay. Well, so what if you want to go to Costco? I said that there are four door evos. I can go there for a date. Cost me 80 bucks. And that includes gas and insurance. The more he says it, the more I realize, hmm, there may be a method to his madness. And he knows where the bicycles yeah. are and where these are and, and LRT and all this kind of stuff. And so you and I might say, look, we can't manage without our car. It's part of our culture. Yeah. But we might be able to manage without a second car. Yes. But you know, going back to your grandchildren, I do say when I meet students at Simon Fraser, any young people who are hoping to get a, a home one day to buy something, I say if you're renting and you don't own, don't own a car. If you look at how much it costs to operate that sure. car, I mean, it can easily be seven or $8,000 sure. a year when you add it all up. And if you were to put that money towards buying a home mm -hmm. and then look at 10 years from now, yeah. what's that car worth? And then what has that investment in that home appreciated to? You would never buy the car. It's true, <clears throat> no question. But you know, in my hometown of Cologne in Germany, they built whole large apartment buildings. You're not allowed to have a car. It's part of the contract for you to own that condo. Or if you have a car, it has to be something like miles away. You have to light up a transit is right there. And one of my oldest friend's daughters who bought one of those units. Uh, by the way, it was funny. I, I kept telling her even in Germany, prices will go higher. And right now, this year, which is uh, 2019 in November, Munich is the number one appreciating town in the world. Would you believe it or not? Imagine uh, that you can have a brand new apartment building without cars. But you know, the city of Cologne was a forerunner anyway. 60 yeah. years ago, they already had inside the city, no cars at all. Yeah. It And what mm. they call from the big dome, which was built uh, somewhere in the year 900, to where probably a, uh, a radius of four or five square miles, there's no cars. And there's park houses were built then 60 years ago. And what it does is this people that come out of their homes into the street, into the business area, into the coffee shop, into their cafe and kuchen or whatever yeah. it is. It's a lifestyle. And I think that's what you also mean by having more people living together on these different areas and not having the garage and all these other things in front of this ugly kind of a thing. You create a totally different world, not just inside, but also outside. That's right. And so these different forms of housing they're difficult to achieve if you're going to provide one or one and a half or two parking spaces for every home. And you know, right now, Ozzy, there are places in Metro Vancouver that if you want to build a townhouse, you have to provide two parking spaces. Yeah. It's crazy. One of the things I have been preaching for 30 years is why don't we take our minimum parking standards? And that's right, the government requires a minimum yeah. number of spaces, yeah. even though we're trying to get rid of congestion, Greenhouse gases, traffic accidents. We should make the minimums yeah. the maximums. It's like and an oxymoron. It's, it is. It does. If you stop and think about it, it doesn't make sense. And fortunately, many municipalities now are, are becoming smarter. Even the district in North Vancouver, it's allowing reduced parking requirements. Other municipalities as well. And a lot of developers will tell you we, we don't want to build, we don't, a lot of the parking spaces are never used. And they are, they are, or they build smaller parking spaces than they used to in the past, you know. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we're coming around to your thinking. Well, okay. one, well one of the things, just quickly yeah. before we leave this, that is starting to become more popular is creating smaller apartments, micro suites. Sure. I mean, one of the reasons that you go from uh, 1,000 square feet to 300 square feet 
is because you can bring the cost down. Yeah. But if you still have to pay fifty or sixty thousand for the parking space, doesn't it doesn't make, make sense. sense. Exactly. So now, and I give credit to Surrey and other municipalities sure. that are saying, yes, we will reduce our minimum unit sizes to allow these micro suites, and no, they don't have to have parking with them. And now, all of a sudden, you're really beginning to create more affordability. Well, that's that's, and, and in fact, it's been proven. One of the developers we both know, a community builder out in Surrey, uh, Sharan City, built this first microsuite building against all sorts of opposition. Yeah. Nobody's going to live there. What kind of people are going to live there? And these units were sold in the hundred to hundred and ten thousand range. And I happen to own some real estate nearby, and I, so I drive by there sometimes, curiously. Beautiful building, in excellent shape. You know, it doesn't just because they're smaller doesn't yeah. mean you have different kind of people living in there. There are people actually that are interested in living in smaller spaces and having some green all around you. Yeah. Many years ago, when Gordon Campbell was mayor of Vancouver, he made a deal with the union pension funds to build rental housing, affordable rental housing. And Jack Poole, a name that will be known to some of the people listening to us now, discovered if you want to build something brand new, it's not going to be affordable, especially at right. 600 square feet for one bedroom. And so he did the first micro suite building on Drake Street in Vancouver. Huh. And I can remember when it went to city council, Jonathan Baker, the lawyer who became a counselor said living in these will be like living in coffins. <laughs> but he was wrong. Yeah. You can live. I mean, the truth is, most of us transition through different forms of housing over time. If you knew you had to spend 60 years living in 300 square feet, yeah. it might be a little bit depressing for some of us, although for others it would be just fine. But most of us are going to live in that for two years or three years, and then we're going to move into something larger. But it helps you get accommodation and affordable price. Well, and you know, we're living in a world that is going 100 miles an hour, literally. I mean, my, maybe my grandfather had to deal with two or three changes a year. My father maybe with a change a month on me, maybe a change a week. The day, today's kids, they have to deal with 10 changes a day and big changes. I mean, everything is now getting online and I feel sorry for some of the older people that forever are supposed to download, sign it, scan it and send it back and I don't even have an email account. Right? I mean, what is all this? And so clearly in the where we live is also going to have to change. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, I mean, one of the latest trends right now is various forms of cooperative living where you don't have 300 square feet. You literally have a 10 by 11 sure. foot room. It's mostly retired though, right? No, young people as well. And if you, especially in America, but even around the world, this co-living, just as co-working is becoming popular, you have a room, you rent it, you share bathrooms, and then you share the living, dining, kitchen area. And there's a number of models right and it's now. It's affordable. It's very affordable. Often these places are furnished. So your commitment is very minimal. The point is, times are changing. Sure. And so are housing choices. And, and to all the municipal officials living, listening to us and the <laughs> planners, to go back to your first question, right. Ozzy, oftentimes it is the planners, but to be fair, it's also those bankers who sure. are worried whether or not people will adjust to these new things. Often they will. Well, and, and to, to, to maybe not too great a surprise, but you were involved in some projects like Elm Park Place in Carisdale or the Highbury and Point Grey or 
Oak Gardens and Oak Ridge or the lagoons on Falls Creek. When you look at all those specific projects, how would you build them the same way or would that change now? No, I think some of them would change, but some of them are exactly what's needed today. Um, they were innovative for the time, like Oak Gardens was the first apartment building on Oak Street. Yeah. And it, it was a battle to <laughs> rezone it yeah. of, of a condominium apartment. Yeah. I replaced four single family lots. Yeah. But the point, and ironically, the neighbors complained and I had to put in <laughs> extra parking spaces. And today, the, it was really for seniors and the parking garage is yeah. empty. So yeah. that's the kind of thing we need. Now we are building a lot more apartments and townhouses. Elm Park Place was apartments for people who don't want to live in an apartment building. <laughs> the idea was a lot of people, they love the amenities of a house. What do they like? Well, they have a layout where you don't, you have rooms and yeah. zoning. You also have an outdoor space. So in Elm Park Place, everybody got a really nice outdoor space, not some four foot deep balcony and so forth. So those sorts of projects, I think we need to continue building. The key thing about them was they were often in established neighborhoods where people wanted to stay. And sadly, we're not building enough for people who want to stay in the neighborhood. Although ironically, Ozzy, I know a lot of people in Dunbar and Carisdale who are selling their houses yeah. and moving to an apartment, but it's not in Dunbar or Carisdale, no. it's in Langley. Or White Rock. <laughs> or White Rock, because that's where their children sure. or their grandchildren are. Sure, and that's why we, we were on Surrey the other day, if it's really a thousand or 1200 people a month that move there, and all the new students from around the world also, everybody needs accommodation. And then let's face it, the valley is beautiful. When you look at other cities in the world, who has as <coughs> much green space as we do? But I mean, you went from these projects, you also, of course, were the great leader in Simon Fraser University, where you, uh, you had the vision and the, were part of the creation of what has really turned out to be one of the finest university livings in the world. Simon Fraser was a community university. There were students living in residence, but you really had no community around it. That's and right. so it was a wonderful yeah. challenge. Uh, as a professor or as a professor, uh, a professional at the university I had free tuition for my children as part of my compensation both of them said dad I'd rather work than go to school here because it didn't have university yeah, life yeah. the way we imagine sure. it at McGill or yeah, Toronto or sure. other universities but that's changed now and I think Simon Fraser's become a wonderful university in part because of the new housing one quick story the students were initially opposed because they said, these are just going to be condos for rich people. I said, where are you living now? Yeah. They were living in basement suites and houses. Yeah. Yeah. I said, we're not building any houses. But I got the idea, why couldn't you have the equivalent of a basement suite in an apartment? Sure, you have a little sublet or something. That's right. Imagine a three-bedroom apartment where the third bedroom has its own door to the corridor. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. We called them lock-off suites. They were 260 square feet, and it was, a, it was like a mortgage helper in the sky, sure. and it created rental housing. Now, there's an idea that I'd love to see uh, become more popular. Well, it's popular it, in all the ski resorts, <coughs> clearly. You know, usually, the owners like the lockup for themselves, but then they rent it out, and when they come, they have a place where they have all the equipment, and then it changed to become a mortgage or a permanent mortgage helper, yeah. clearly. Yeah. And that's exactly exactly the precedent. Yeah, interesting. Well, of course, you know, from Simon Fraser, or what about your the Bayshore community in Cole Harbor? What were the initial phases like there? 
the interesting thing about Bayshore was it was a major project in the city of Vancouver where the, the mayor of Vancouver dictated that 20% of all the apartments and homes had to be affordable housing. This is an interesting yeah, concept. Yeah. Next to Stanley Park, on the waterfront, right. we now are obligated to create affordable housing. That was quite innovative for its yes. time. Today, though, we're beginning to see more and more of that. I was uh, doing some work in Russia, and I was telling people in Russia about inclusionary zoning policies in <laughs> Vancouver. They said, my God, this sounds more like the old Russia than yeah. what we imagine North America to be like. And they're right. They, yeah, couldn't, a they yeah. couldn't accept it. But it allowed us to create some affordable housing for some seniors who came from the performance world. Uh, actors, actresses, sure. radio personalities, people like you who are hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot of these famous actors made, yeah. a, you know, were famous, but they didn't make a lot of money. Right. <clears throat> we did a development called Life Lease, where some of the homes are rental, but some of them people bought them, mm -hmm. but they didn't take title. They just had the right to live there as long as they wanted but they got it at a much lower price. And it's a wonderful option. Sure. Again, another idea. The thing at the time, and, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, I have my boat uh, in Coal Harbor, and I go by that building uh, all the time, and I'm always thinking, who makes the decision as to who's allowed to live there? I mean, yeah. what, first of all, what is affordable housing? What, what's affordable? What is the criteria? Is this sort of something written down as yeah. to... Generally speaking, when people talk about affordable or subsidized or social housing, they're thinking of housing for people whose incomes are going to be, you know, in the bottom two quintiles. In okay. other words, the lower 40% or the lower 20%. And their rent, what they pay, literally is a function of their income. Rent geared to income. So if they earn 50000 a year, then their rent is no more than 17000 a year. Right. And uh, you say, well, 17000 a year, that sounds like a lot of money. When you divide that by 12 and look, yeah. that's far less than the cost of a new studio suite sure. in Vancouver. Sure. Well, it's interesting, but who makes the decision who's allowed to get in there? Well, some of these buildings are literally taken over by the city. Okay. And the city then yeah, engages okay. a non-profit or they transfer the title right. to a nonprofit and they then manage it. Yeah. And some of them, like Metro Vancouver has nonprofit housing. Sure. They have their own board that determines who's And they have their in. rules and regulation and waiting lists. I remember years ago, a gentleman by the name of Kasim Akhtai built the first uh, apartment building just underneath the Borat Street Bridge. And with that, he had to build uh, a tower of, uh, yes. of this low-cost housing. <coughs> and he felt it was a bright idea. He was just, uh, he was so innovative at the time that this is just pre-Expo. And yes. he had this vision of telling me, once Expo is here, the world will really move to Vancouver. And he felt that we had some very innovative uh, planning uh, planners uh, on City Hall already. Yeah. Tell me, you know, somebody asked me the other day about airspace. You know, I noticed that the church on the corner of um, uh, Georgia and Vorad, uh, uh, I believe, sold its airspace rights yes. to the wall center so they could build some higher. What is the rationale behind that? Well, the rationale is that every piece of property has certain development rights under the zoning. 
but there's some buildings where you literally don't want to knock down the existing yeah. building and if it is a church you don't even want to build on top of it yeah. but in order to help preserve that church but yeah. not disadvantage them they're allowed to sell yeah. Yeah. or transfer what might have been the rights that could have been put on that property yeah. to somewhere else so Park Place in downtown Vancouver sure. instance that big building happened because they bought the air rights from Christchurch Cathedral and the interesting thing is you go to New York or you go to many other cities it's a very very busy active way of doing business sure. and it's starting to happen here but it's limited but it is a very creative way to protect heritage properties so that you don't feel compelled and to its credit the city of Vancouver is now saying you know we could take character houses or heritage houses and if there's room on the property why don't we let in return for keeping that lovely little house yeah. we'll let you build beside it yeah. or underneath sure. it yeah. and as you know I'm doing two projects in West Vancouver Innovative project. keeping heritage homes completely remodeling them and then building new infill houses on the same lot and it becomes like we talked about at the beginning four homes and one lot and it becomes another housing choice in in the neighborhood so now we have your new innovative world we have five or six units per lot and we have all of this this great city actually i think vancouver is a great city the way it's been laid out i mean i can turn right and right again and i'm back to where i was <laughs> in my old hometown which was built by the romans uh, if you turn right and right again goodness knows where you end up but the thing is this, is it a good investment though for the investor? And I wonder how many, how many times the, 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 the desires of the city through for, in, for taxes or for growth conflict with each other. Yeah. First of all, we have the federal <coughs> government just having had an election promising affordable housing, but they're really not in charge of all the costs that are laid on to a developer. But they're just up front, but once it's built, the use of the land, it's always the highest and best use of the land uh, in, in, in appraisal terms. What is that property worth? Mm. Well, I think you have mm. to go a step further now, not just the highest and best use for that piece now, but what is the highest and best use for the person who buys it? Because if I put a coach house on a 33-foot lot and that coach house might represent a third of the value of the property when I sell it at a million dollar profit, all of a sudden, 333,000 is now taxable income. Did I bargain for that when I <clears> built it? Ozzy, you just told your listeners something that all of, most people who are building laneway houses or coach houses are not aware of. There's no doubt that there are repercussions for some of these things from a tax point of view. But that being said, in some cases, especially for a family member, if somebody wants to build a coach house in the rear so that their children sure. can live there, sure. knowing that maybe over time the you know, they're going to pass on or before they pass on, they'll move into the coach house or laneway house sure. in there. I think that, that that is a good idea. But where it does get interesting, you asked about airspace parcels. Many of these new buildings in Vancouver, are, but also in Richmond and North Vancouver, have a mixture of affordable housing and condos together and many people say to me do I really want to be in a condominium where a portion of the building is rental housing and you know I'm gonna say yes 
I don't think that necessarily it's going to reduce the value in any significant way. The other thing is oftentimes there's going to be separate entrances, separate ownership, separate elevators sure. and so forth. So I would say to people, don't, some people won't be happy with it, but to others I say, don't dis, you know, disregard am, that as an option. I am totally, actually totally in agreement with you, even more so perhaps, because I have seen well-run rental buildings live happily ever after, and I've seen owner-run buildings in total chaos. The Strata Council is fighting, the owners don't want to spend any money on the new roof because I'm going to sell next year anyways, and I want, I want to be part of it. I've seen the fighting all in owner-occupied buildings much more than in rental ones that were well managed. Yes, and indeed, you know, oftentimes today, the difference between the person who's in the rental unit and the person who's in the ownership, the difference is whether or not they have parents who gave them three hundred thousand dollars <laughs> yeah. for a down payment. <laughs> yeah. Now, I will now argue against myself, Ozzy, because sometimes I think there are situations that you need to be careful about, and that's when there's great extremes. So if you've got very, very high-end condominiums and then they're trying to put in homes for people who are formerly homeless, yeah. then I've got a problem sure. with that. And I actually have tried to encourage the city, don't create too much disparity yeah. because it won't work. Yeah, because one of the developers <coughs> told me is I'm forced to build a building where we put in the first four floors are people that will steal the bicycles from the next yes. four floors. And he says, you know, that it's a terrible thing to, to, under the umbrella of doing good, we're really doing something bad and we're not getting it going. But, you know, just to pick up on this, you know, you talk about Germany. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Europe, mm. it, it, you often had a far greater mixing of incomes oh, in sure. a neighborhood than we, we traditionally used to have here. And I, so I think it is a good thing. I mean, it took me a while. My first project in Vancouver for CMHC was the South Shore Falls Creek. One third low income, one third mid income, one third high income. And you know, over 40 years, generally speaking, most people get along fairly well. And I think that's true, particularly I would say in, in, uh, in Canada, you know, where we are all not burdened mm -hmm. with, I mean, I remember when I, when I came from Germany and my first job, and I said, Mr. So-and-so, he said, no, call me Jack. I just, I found it uh, almost impossible to call you Jack. Are you kidding me? You know, yes. it's, a, it's, yeah. a, it's this openness. And I think it's part of the language. Here you see the word the is in Germany. We have three words for that. And none of those words really make any sense. Because if I look and das, it's das Messer, der Löffel and die Gabel. So there's masculine. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the point is, it's easier. It's an easier language. And the word you is encompassing. <laughs> in Germany or in France, you have the... The, the, I have to know you for a while to, to use the right terms. So apart from that makes it easier to live together. But if you have the right kind of housing, that'll be a spectacularly so. So what's the, what's the future ahead uh, in, in Vancouver? It's, you know, the funny thing is if you want to know the future, look at the past. Hmm. Think of what Vancouver was like in the, the 1930s or the 50s. In the 1950s, we took down single family houses and we put up 10 suite apartment buildings yeah. on them. <laughs> we haven't done that since. Yeah. I think in the future, you're gonna see people removing houses in single family neighborhoods and putting up 10 and 12 suite apartment buildings. Uh, the, I, that's just one solution. There's no doubt we're gonna see more and more townhouses and apartments along all the main streets. Now, ironically, 
it's the last place we should put them because the streets are polluted, they're busy, they're <laughs> noisy. noisy, but it's easier to get approval. So we're going to see a lot, a lot more of that. But hopefully we'll also see more mixed uses. When we build the next Dunbar Community Center, hopefully it'll have some housing on top of sure. it. And around the community center and around the park, instead of a few little single family houses, we'll see townhouses. And maybe those townhouses, Aussie, won't all be condominiums. Some of them will be individually owned, fee simple hmm. row houses, like they build sure. all over Europe, sure. all over Toronto. Sure. Well, the, and the thing though is, <coughs> it is a great vision. But great visions are only accomplished by visionaries. You know, mm -hmm. who's going to lead, you know, this, this multitude of housing? Um, who would be put in charge? Is it the planning department? Is it the development community? Is it what, what makes it happen in the end? Well, one of the things that makes it happen is yeah. when the people who've historically opposed development say, you know, I'd like to now sell my house and move into an apartment in our neighborhood or a townhouse. Then there's a changing attitude. I do a lot of work in West Vancouver, which historically has been a very conservative place and still is. But we're beginning, even in West Vancouver, to see greater acceptance. I did a development where I took three lots and put nine homes, three duplexes, three coach houses, all for sale. 150 people opposed it when it started. It got approved by a 4-3 vote, and now it's become a poster child sure. for the kind of development people want. So it won't happen if it's just the planners or the architects. It has to be the public saying, yeah. I want some of this. I agree that, that <clears throat> we, need, we need the leadership, we need the vision, and certainly you are the kind of guy that has the vision and the leadership because you put your own nickels on the line when you <laughs> put all these houses together. But you ha have also that, uh, that wonderful feeling when you look at what you have created uh, because you have to be, mm. sometimes you have to be the first, right? And to take a heritage kind of a place and turn it into this great living space in West Vancouver is quite an achievement. Well, and it's, you know, it's also a challenge to explain to people because they think, oh, do I really want to buy an old house? Isn't yeah. it like buying an old car? Yeah. Well, ironically, these homes have been so completely refurbished. They're virtually like brand, brand new. But, you know, I think a lot of us get excitement in different ways. But at the end of the day, it is nice to contribute to the beautification of the city and to create housing choices. When I go up to SFU and yeah. I meet people sure. who are living there, not they have nothing to do with the university community, but they like living up there because they feel it's a family-friendly neighborhood and, uh, and it was more affordable. Or I go to some of the apartment buildings that I built. And sure. uh, the irony, though, I don't mind sharing with you and your listeners, is my wife was saying, you know, maybe it's time for us to sell our big house. <laughs> and uh, we got far more space than we, we have rooms we never go in. And so I said, you know, I built an apartment in Carisdale, which was really very nice. Uh, maybe I'll speak to the guy who owns it and say, if you ever decide to sell it, let me know. Anyway, I met him. He said, you know, actually, we just listed it. I said, really? How much was it? He said, 5.3 million. <laughs> I said, you know, things yeah. have got awry yeah. when you can't afford to buy the building that you built yeah. uh, 30 years, 20 years ago. Well, Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure because uh, you are an icon and uh, yeah. 
and, uh, and an incredible achiever. And I wish that uh, a lot more people thought like you and felt like you. And being in the forefront, you make them uh, come and, and look at things your way and make it happen. So thank you very much for joining well, us. Well, thank tonight. you for inviting me. And to those people who stayed right to the very end, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> and I echo that. <laughs>